0: When you're talking about hookup culture, you know, it doesn't promote intimacy. It doesn't promote you knowing or learning about one person or understanding that person fully. It allows me to, A, keep my walls up and it allows their person to sort of keep their walls up. And we're just sort of mutually enjoying the physical part of our relationship, but we're not really understanding or learning how to be close to one another.
1: Let's go! Welcome to Becoming an Epic Being with your host Sukoon. As an advocate of conscious living, my mission is to help you young adults navigate through the confronting issues of your generation, question conventional beliefs and choose authenticity because that is where your true joy lies. Each week I dive into raw conversations with inspiring guests who have undergone big shifts and are here to offer you the tools to do the same. So get ready to step up your game and jump on the ride as you begin the journey towards the next stage of your self evolution. Thank you for joining me on this 91st episode of Becoming an Epic Being, which I'm super psyched about, given that we are literally 9 episodes away from touching the big 100. Today we're diving into the big 3 letter word, S-E-X, but not quite in the way you're thinking, so don't get too excited. We're talking about this from the angle of addiction, and joining me is a Michigan-based licensed professional counselor, Patrick Ehlers, who specializes in the area of sexual addiction. So you'll be hearing Patrick talk about how to identify signs of addiction, the cons of hooking up and one-night-stand culture, and how sexual addiction ends up affecting relationships and what you can do about it. Clearly, this conversation is as educational as it is relevant. Hope this helps. Thanks for being here, Patrick. I love that what we're diving into is so relevant because instant gratification rules our lifestyles. And I'm sure you have a lot to say on that, given that you specialize in the area of addiction or more specifically sexual addiction. What drove you towards studying this subject? Yeah,
0: it's something that, uh, you know, as I got started as a therapist, I um, yeah, started realizing, and this is an area in the field that is uh, is really, at least for a lot of folks, at least in, in the United States anyway, we're, there was this very. it's a big need, and we don't have a lot of people who are um, uh, really helping specialize in that area. So <clears throat> we have a lot of addiction, uh, people working with drugs or alcohol, but certainly sex addiction itself is something that we don't really um, spend a lot of time uh, addressing. That is something that's a relatively new area, I would say, as far as research goes. Um, A lot of the research that we use, um, we use a guy named Dr. Patrick Carnes, his material, Mm -hmm. and a lot of his research came from starting in the 80s. So it's a relatively new area of the field. Um, And so we're kind of getting a sense of what does that look like? And and we don't really fully know that yet because we haven't really had a whole entire generation from birth to to death that has been, uh, was covered with the internet. You know, we have a lot of people who've lived with the internet most of their life, but we have yet to see a whole entire generation from from their time that they've been born to the time that they've died with the internet. So uh, we don't really fully know what the, what the consequences are yet quite of that. So there's certainly, it's an ever-growing area of the field that's changing.
1: Gotcha. So I'm someone who loves diving deeper into understanding the reason and like just why things happen. So from your research, what have you found to be the core underlying reasons that drive addictive behavior?
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's 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 several different things that we kind of look for as far as you would talk about I any mean, symptomologies that we might see. One of those areas particularly would be uh, early experiences people have, especially if they have been affected in some way by coming across something that's pornographic. So, uh, you know, when we were younger, before the Internet, so to speak, um, for a lot of folks, you know, they, they may have come across the Playboy or some type of a, porno, a print pornography uh, at their mom and dad's house or somewhere at their friend's house or whatever. Now we're seeing that, you know, kids as young as five, six years old are having these experiences because their access to the Internet. Um, it's not necessarily because they may uh, intend to run across those things, but it's because they, that's just what they end up coming across. So uh, one of the things that we tend to see is there's usually an early experience for folks. They kind of have this imprint. If you think about um, a sheet of paper that's blank and you have like a, a thumb with, uh, with ink on it, you kind of make an imprint on those p- in the paper, and that's pretty impactful for people's lives. Usually their first experience is very impactful. Could be consensual, could be something that they had when they were, you know, an older adolescent. Um, But a lot of those times, that's one of the things, you know, first experience is pretty powerful. Sometimes it can be. Uh, rigid family uh, views on sex. Uh, certainly sex is not a topic that a lot of people feel comfortable talking about. Right. Um, so if they don't feel comfortable talking about it, you'll see a lot of times where family members or people will not bring it up. They won't have a lot of conversations around it. And so there's a curiosity level. And so people will start to explore with pornography and try to you know, understand more about sexuality. So there's certainly that piece of it as well. I'd say another thing that we typically see a lot of the times for folks is that They have some type of a um, uh, maybe a genetic component or what we call um, like an operant learning type experience where, you know, it's been kind of handed down modeled for them. Uh, So sometimes addiction can definitely run in families uh, kind of generation to generation. So there is a genetic component that our brain is actually altered uh, during the period of um, when you act out over a period of time. So if you continue to use the substance, your brain actually becomes changed. And so that's a physical change in the brain. And so when that happens, uh, that's something that, you know, can definitely get passed down genetically. And so we'll see a lot of people with have kind of generational addiction in their life. And it doesn't have to just be pornography, but it could be um, usually whatever the substance is typically is the one because that's the learned behavior from the kind of offspring who've gone through that. So that's, those are some of the areas we would look for. There's really kind of 10 things that, you know, as far as symptomologies, but those are the kind of the big three that I would say is that come up pretty commonly for folks.
1: Interesting, because I mean, like everyone has early access to this stuff. So are we saying that it's the genetics that separate those who get addicted versus those who don't?
0: It could be. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's always guaranteed to be that way. Um, But I do think that there's certainly the aspect that you're more, um, your conditions are more favorable if you have more of a genetic component to it, certainly, as far as the addiction goes. Um, Yes, there's a lot of people who are exposed to it. um, But how do we use that? You know, is that something that we end up using as an unhealthy behavior? So a lot of times you'll see people Will use pornography as a way to cope, as a way to deal with stress, as a way to deal with um, the things in their life.
1: Yeah,
0: and so what ends up happening is that becomes kind of the only way that they that becomes their sole way that they tend to deal with things. And if that's the only way you're um, you're navigating life, it's going to end up becoming very limited. So you know you lose out in relationships. You're not as close with people. You tend to um, you know isolate from folks. Those kind of things. So those are some things that come up sometimes that people, you know, again, early exposures are part of it. But, you know, kind of the continuation of that behavior is certainly part of uh, you know what, what builds on an addiction.
1: Right. And how could someone tell that they have an actual problem? Because most of the times people just don't know what they don't know. So what are some signs that perhaps indicate that they might have an addiction issue after all?
0: Yeah, so a person typically will, you know, one of the things we'll, we'll commonly call, uh, or I usually get a lot of report from people, is that they talk a lot about this idea we call preoccupation. And that's just a fancy term for kind of how, how much are you thinking about sexual thoughts? Are you are you pretty much consumed most of the time or almost all the time with sexual thoughts? And we do live in a very sexual society. So there's much more access to it. And you, you add social media into that fact, there's just so much, there's much more of that as well. So you have a lot of these areas where you're going to see a lot of sexual thoughts, but one of the things that people typically will report is that they get very um overwhelmed with the thoughts of sex when they see people like in public. So they tend to sexualize everyone, even if they're not necessarily attracted to that person. They tend to sexualize them because they've associated that with, with women, and you know, if it's a man or, or vice versa. And so uh that's a common one. I see a lot of time. people talk about the preoccupation just overwhelming. It, it, it's I can't stop thinking about it. So that's one big sign. Another one I would say that we look for would be <clears throat> how often are people able to um engage with our folks? Are they isolating to the point that they're not able to connect with people? They they tend to just only involve themselves in pornography, or are they consistently able to um be totally you know, is that something that's totally consuming their life? And that there's nothing else that they're really involved with. They it tends to affect their social life, their um their work life to the point that, you know, they don't they don't do the things that they need to do. They they're focused on sex and watching pornography so how overwhelmed is your life by by pornography would be kind of another area i'd say um especially if you're talking about um the building of the addiction you know as as it elevates you know people kind of chasing that high so to speak um you'll see that that you know it could be several hours of, of you know viewing pornography especially if it's masturbation you know pornography assisted masturbation it could be hours of that involved so that's something else people can look for
1: got it so you know that the average gen z has access to pretty much everything that there is how can they prevent themselves from being overstimulated and becoming a victim of addiction?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think the big thing is, and I was thinking about this when we, when we were talking um, you know, previous to this, that uh, you know what the answer, I think one of the big answers is, how are we engaging face-to-face? How are you working on your intimate relationships? Um doesn't necessarily mean intimate relationships when I say that. I mean, intimate is doesn't have to just be a physical, sexual relationship with someone, but how are you working on your relationship with your family, your friends? Getting away from screens, I think, is a big part of that, right? If you try to eliminate some, not totally eliminate it, but certainly, you know, try to reduce the amount of screen usage, so you're not going to be act, you're not gonna have as much access to it. Trying to connect with people more face-to-face, I think, certainly is, a, is an element that will help with that. Another thing that can be done that people tend to um, do is kind of put blockers or put things that allow you to have, a certain amount of time online so you're not consumed completely by your by your phone and putting good boundaries around where your phone is going and where, you know, what area do you have access? If you have your access to your phone all the time, the likelihood that you're going to always be checking it, always wanting to know what's going on. Um, you know, we see a lot of those type of things, even when you're talking about reinforcement from just the phone, right, from social media, those kind of things, even without pornography being involved. But certainly this idea of reducing your amount of screen time. And like I said, Boundaries around where the phone goes. I mean, the phone really should never be in the bathroom or the bedroom. Yeah. I mean, both of those two places are very True. common for people. That's where the time, people right? most of the time act out. And so to get the phone to a point where maybe it stays in a in a neutral location, some type of a living space or living quarters where it's not going to be where you're going to be sleeping or you're going to be you know using the bathroom or whatever, um, those can help with that too. I, I always encourage when, I, when some of the first boundaries you work on with guys that, that I'm typically working with, I always say, hey, look, those, those are two big places. Let's start right there. To keep the phone out of the bathroom in the bedroom, and that you know that really starts to diminish some of that usage. So, so those are a couple areas I would say as far as like you know practical things you really can start. Yeah, doing so like right basically today. just
1: being self accountable and setting your own um, rules for discipline and just managing your temptations and so on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and and the thing, the more access you have to it, the more likelihood that you're probably going to feel the temptation of it. There's a lot of pairing involved with some of these behaviors too, like you know what you know room association you know, what you're looking at, you know, if what you're watching on TV, you might, you know, might just be a, an ad, but it pops up and you're like, oh, that makes me start thinking about it. You know, having that awareness of, you know, where am I, where am I seeing some of this stuff come up? I usually see a consistency yeah. with that, you know, when those are sort of, um, you know, popping up for people.
1: That makes so much sense, because in fact, I was going to ask you, how do you think social media has affected people's or rather shaped people's expectations from their desired partners of, what people and how people should be uh
0: yeah so i think with that one right so social media you know has has really moved you know has moved people to a point where i think that we're seeing what what we're viewing with with on with on social media is like this is reality when it's not really um you know it's kind of faux reality and that's that's one of the things that pornography plays a huge role with people is that you know it's just real enough that it it seems like it's reality but it isn't
1: wait so would this include dating apps as well
0: I would kind of put that in dating apps. Yeah, yeah I think it's it, that's a very hard. That's a whole other sort of part of it. You know, certainly the dating apps are really, really hard too, and challenging. And you know, what is really real, what really isn't. I do think one of the things that comes up a lot for folks uh, is when you're out of that reality. You know, certainly, and I see this a lot with pornography. Right, people are out of out of what is real, um, and so the brain doesn't the brain doesn't categorize that. You know, it categorizes that as that's really happening. So it, it sort of mm-hmm. sees that as this is something that's really occurring for me. It's not, this is not just something I'm just watching. So it's almost like you experience that for real, even though it's not real. And I think some of that's true for social media. You know, we see these things that are not meant to be sexualized, but they become sexualized. I see a lot of things, even just on Instagram, you know, it's like hiking or travel videos or whatever. And it's a lot of Mm. very sexualized kind of content. It's not intended to be, but that's, that's sort of what it ends up becoming. So how can we, you know, be realistic in that way? Like, you know, knowing social media is, is, again, it's altered to some degree. It's not real. It's sort of a virtual reality to some degree. Um, and understanding that that's, you know, that some of these things, there might be people who really truly do live lives that are similar to this, but it's not, you know, that's not fully their reality. It's a, it's a, it, it does have a, a bit of a degree that's, it's, it's fake in that sense. But I do think when you're talking about, again, managing expectations, you know, then, of course, then I have to look in with myself, you know, what are my expectations for a partner? What are my expectations for the life that I want to live with somebody so that I'm not in a position where my expectations are unrealistic? I think that's the another thing social media can tend to do is it, it ch- changes our expectations for what a partner could be, what a partner should be. What does that mean for us? What does that look like for us? And so we tend to sort of focus on those expectations. Rather than focus on what what is right in front of me, the person that's in front of me, and they're not going to be perfect. We're none of us are. So, how can we be okay with that? You know, sort of in that space of yes, I'm, I'm I my partner is a wonderful person. And I love the person for who they are, rather than love from what they what I think they could be or what they what I think that they're working to should be or whatever. However, I want to word that. You know, there's some there's some uh, parts of that that I think are certainly the expectations of people that are, are unrealistic.
1: True. And at some level, even comparison has just played a huge role in how we see ourselves and others and just a constant comparison with what we see in the social construct. And I feel like we've become very delusional about what people are like or should be like.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what they look like, how their body is, you know, what their body looks like, those kind of certainly are aspects of that. You bring in the, sort of the sexualized piece there. Yeah, the comparison's huge. And then how does that turn in for us, right? So the person who's viewing that is that then that person comparing themselves then to other people, you know, I don't have this life and brings a lot of sort of depression and anxiety, I think around kind of where I'm at in my life. Um, and everybody's season's going to be in a different place. So it doesn't mean that I'm somehow, you know, behind the curve, so to speak. It's just that if I'm comparing myself to where somebody else is, um, I'm not going to be giving myself a, an opportunity to really live my life. I'm, you know, comparing to something that somebody else has.
1: Precisely. I'd also like you to speak about how this whole hookup slash one night stand culture actually sabotages the intimacy that people seek.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that that's another area for sure that's that's really affected by social media. And you, you know, you talked about dating apps earlier. I think there's a an aspect of that as well that come up. Uh, so the hookup culture, you know, one night stands, that idea of you know being able to be with one person. Um, you know, one person, then another person to another, another person is very, what they call the, the term they typically use for that is conquest type behavior. You know, you, for for some people, it's to try to see if they could to have that person sleep with them or that person be with them. And so there's a, a thrill there. Sometimes people are drawn to the newness of a relationship. So yeah. when you first get into a relationship that kind of puppy love, you know, everybody kind of feels really great for the first three months. It's kind of that bonding agent. But when you get to that point where it starts to change and you start to see the you know, person you know, more realistically because you're, not, you're no longer having that sort of feeling with them, um, then the person leaves and finds somebody else. And so there's sometimes people are drawn to that particular um, feeling because that feeling is very powerful. So when you're talking about hookup culture, you know, it doesn't promote intimacy. It doesn't promote you knowing or learning about one person or understanding that person fully. You know one of the things we think about intimacy is the idea for to be fully known or to fully know somebody else. And so it doesn't promote that. It allows me to a keep my walls up and it allows their person to sort of keep their walls up. and we're just sort of mutually enjoying the physical part of our relationship, but we're not really understanding or learning how to be close to one another. And so a lot of times when you have uh, you know relationship after relationship, again, you go back to comparison, well, this person was great. this person wasn't. And then sort of it's it's kind of I have all these different options when really, I'm not bonding to one person, I'm not learning the all about this one particular person and to build that intimacy piece and foundation with, with one individual. So that's really where I think when you're talking about intimacy and how intimacy is affected by the hookup culture is that it doesn't promote any of that because you're not learning about, you know, you're learning about all these people on a very small scale. You're getting a small snapshot, almost like a Polaroid of a person. But then you're not really getting the full scope of who they really are. You know, the, the, their dreams, their desires, their um, their fears, their their strengths. They're all 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 across the board. And that's such you know, what, a huge part of
1: intimacy. In... All of this stuff forms such a huge mm-hmm. part. And if you aren't even diving into that, then like you have no intimacy. Then it's just a you know it's like a physical thing that fades away so quickly.
0: Absolutely. And and then you also don't do that either, right? So as a person who's hooking up with multiple people at once or you know multiple times in a row. You're also not being able to be nurtured. And so the foundation to mo- all intimacy really is coming from a place of nurturing. You know, can I be nurtured? Can I allow that person to care for me? Yeah, it's risky. Yeah. That, that might get hurt, but I have to risk that if I want the intimacy piece and vice versa. That person has to also do the same. Uh, and that's not an easy thing because we live in a culture where we don't like to risk things. We don't like to sting it out into that, you know, I could be hurt place um, because, you know, nobody, human beings don't want to be hurt, which, you know, understandably, And a lot of people have been hurt. But how do we, you know, allow those things to become strengths for us? How do we allow those things to become ways we can be resilient so that we're not in a position where we're just, you know, continuing to just go from person to person and never actually building a relationship with someone?
1: Did you mention that there's a certain type of personality involved when it comes to engaging in high pleasure activities like one night stands and so on? I wouldn't
0: say it's a personality, uh, just the term that's typically used, at least in the sex addiction world is, is conquest type behavior. So the idea there's, you know, you're trying to, you know, be kind, con- you know, you're sort of conquesting for the next person.
1: Conquesting? Um,
0: it's not necessarily, that's just the term that we've used. Yeah. That's yeah. That's the best term I can put to it. It's like, it's not a personality, so to speak. It's a person who is, um, their behavior is very like, you know, trying to a- a- attain the next person or to try to get to be with the next person, so to speak. So their goal is not really to be with a person, their goal is to get the relationship and have that sort of conquest, right? To, to but, be successful at having this relationship or short-term relationship.
1: Yeah, but I'm wondering if it's fair to put people who are commitment phobic under a certain category or is it like completely random and there's no correlation to personality types and what kind of people engage in the addictive behavior, so to say?
0: I don't know if there's a common thread, so to speak, of people not. who are, are doing that. I think that you see sometimes what happens is like, you know, people who watch a lot of pornography, if they start there, if that becomes part of their addiction. Yes. Can that spread to those re- relationships and that behavior? Right. Yes, it can. Um, it certainly can escalate to that. It doesn't mean it always does, but it does for some folks. And so, again, does that, how does pornography you know, change my view of how I see women, how I see relationships? Do I just see them as just someone to sort of, you know, just, you know, take for my pleasure, so to speak, and then move on? And if that's my viewpoint, then I, then I tend to have a, you know, more of a conquest type behavior because I'm going to move into that that realm of it rather than just being in pornography. So sometimes both of those coexist. They can, the people can be doing both things right. and still, you know, continue to act out that way. Uh, I wouldn't say there's like a common thread. I mean, I know a, a very big pop culture psych term right now is narcissism. And so there are people who have narcissistic tendencies, that yeah. can be like that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are diagnosably narcissists, right? They just, they may struggle being able to be you know, outside of their own you know, world, yeah. world view, so to speak. Um, and that's something that you know, people can learn to do, learn to change. Uh, but when they are, maybe you're immersed kind of in an addiction, a lot of your life becomes about you. So it's very, you become very inwardly focused in that way.
1: Sure. Just going back to addiction, would it be fair to say that it plays a major part in infidelity?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that happens a lot with folks and we see it with where we're, um, where the specialty that I work, especially practicing work with um, is partner but trauma trail, or sorry, partner, trauma, partner, betrayal, trauma. Okay. Say that three times fast. Uh, <laughs> those are, uh, those are, it's a, it's basically a, what happens for a lot of partners when, when addiction is present. So. Usually what ends up happening is somebody who, you know, earlier in their life, they haven't gotten, they've gotten involved with pornography. They've, they've become addicted to it. They don't feel they're an addict. They, they see it as again, kind of a coping skill. Um, it may not be something that's even life threatening to their life, right? It's just, and I mean, that is like, it's not going to make their life fall apart. They're just, they're, they're kind of a um, a functioning addict in that way. They get married. Uh, their wife's, you know, their wife says to them, you know, Hey, I'm not, I don't, I don't want you watching any porn. And they may have even been asked about the fact that they were watching it. And um, as time goes on, uh, they get caught somewhere down the road. And Mm -hmm. so what ends up happening is for a partner, um, they start to experience what is typically like a PTSD-like symptomology. Um, And so sometimes that's diagnosable as PTSD, but other times it's just some symptoms that are similar to that. So you'll see a lot of this hypervigilance, you know, detective kind of work, uh, I don't trust you, Um, a lot of this kind of cycle of, you know, I don't, you know, I can't, I can't I want to be with you, but I don't trust you. I don't know what's, yeah. in, I don't know how to find safety with you.
1: It's very hard to trust people like At that. that po-
0: Absolutely. And and when that ends up happening for a lot of folks, and this is very common, a partner will tell somebody who's struggling with, with the sex addiction piece, you go work on you, go see Patrick, go talk to him. You know, he'll get you straightened out, that kind of thing. And then I'll, you know, I'm going to be over here. Usually if once the partner starts to have kind of uh, betrayal trauma symptoms, um, That's in the relationship. I always think about like a fish tank, you know, you have a fish tank with water, it's got all these living organisms in it. You just introduced, you know, three drops or four drops of red food coloring in the water. The water's now going to have red, it's going to be red. Um, You can't take the water out of the fish tank. It's, it's just part of the relationship now. Not saying that you can't heal from that, but what I am saying with that is that when that happens for a lot of folks, um, unless they both partner and addict, so to speak, deal with that together. Um, the relationship will always be in that sort of neutral space. It's always going to be that same loop because a partner may not even realize they're having trauma symptoms, but mm-hmm. they typically usually are. There's usually some things you, you can help them kind of guide and look, look for. So I always encourage folks if they're in that position, one person works with somebody who's a sex addiction specialist, which would be like me, uh, they call CSAP, And then um, a partner works with somebody who's an ABSAT, which is uh, a partner trauma specialist. I think it's uh I don't exactly remember the acronym, but it's uh, basically a partner partner trauma specialist yeah. specifically. So they they help okay. you they help them navigate that part of what they're going through, and then the other part of it is dealing with kind of the sex addiction piece. So this isn't all. This is a relational affecting um, behavior. Absolutely, hundred percent.
1: Sure and because this stuff is so private and like really hard to talk about with anyone like even with a partner i can imagine that it can feel pretty confronting to admit that you're sexually addicted for reasons that you've outlined yourself so if someone listening to this right now has recognized that they have this issue what should the next step be
0: Yeah, so there is a couple things they can do um, besides seeking some type of therapy. First, you got a specialist, and I say that because a lot of people who are not specialists again they can help with some of the stuff, um, but they may not be able to help directly with some of the, the symptomologies for people who are s- struggling with sex addiction specifically. Uh, what similarly exactly are to like a famil- to
1: help through this problem, like it's a very particular problem. So, what exactly do the therapists, like yourself, in mean, broad outline, like what do you guys focus on to help people overcome these things?
0: Yeah. Well, the big thing would be trying to get to the root kind of of what, what has specifically been kind of the cause of maybe what started this. Um, again, that there's some folks that have had abuse sor- stories in their life. So that's still, that's a kind right. of a little bit different you know, type of trauma r- approach yeah. there. But some people haven't, you know, they've had just their, their experience has been like we talked about earlier. They've come across pornography at a young age and they've, they've found that way as a way to cope. Um, really, I think it's ad- identifying and helping people identify more than just stopping the behavior there's a secondary piece to it. So a lot of people will say, well, let's just eliminate the behavior and that'll fix it. And that does help. But obviously, you know, we want to stop that unhealthy behavior. We want to focus on healthier behaviors, but it's kind of a lifestyle change And the secondary part is, you know, how can I make the switch of completely, you know, sort of changing my mindset? Because a lot of times if my mind has been focused on sex totally, um, even if I stop the behavior, it doesn't change my thought life. It doesn't change the things I'm still sort of navigating and totally. working on internally. So the, a lot of times what people will do is they'll stop the behavior. They'll try to white knuckle it. That's what they call it. It's the term that they use. So they'll try to kind of grit their teeth through it and they go, I'm not going to do this and I'm just going to stop the behavior. But they're still living a um, a life sort of in shackles in that way because they're never actually, you know, free from the behavior. They're still just internalizing it. So there's kind of two parts to that. You know, one part is stopping behavior, but the other part is also working on that internal piece. And so that can be outlined, you know, the best way I can outline that would probably be that they're, you know, for a lot of people, There's these deep wounds that they've been hurt, right? So there's a lot of, there's things in life that people experience if you, like, push somebody, right? That's just kind of an uncomfortable push, you know, and they can still stand up. But if I, you know, take a hammer to somebody, I'm going to do some serious damage. I'm going to wound somebody. And so there's wounds that people have emotionally. And so in those wounds, um, a lot of these unhealthy behaviors kind of sprout up and pop up from that. And so a specialist kind of helps a person kind of navigate that part of it versus maybe somebody who's not a specialist kind of focusing more on like uh, the symptomology piece, stopping the behavior. Got it. And then the other side of that is if you're a partner, you're working, you have, you're working with a partner trauma specialist, you're going to work on kind of the understanding of why is my body reacting to yeah. these things that I didn't react to before. There's a book out there, uh, Bessel van der brand uh, the, the Body That Keeps the Score. That's one of the ones I've had, it, I've kind of gotten through some of it, but it's a really good book kind of about trauma. And so a lot of these, um, a lot of these particular behaviors on both sides are usually have trauma, have some type of mm-hmm. trauma involved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, usually emotional trauma, but it could even be physical or, or sexual trauma in that way too.
1: And that's what you help them navigate through.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, that would be the that'd be the focus of what uh, kind of working with a specialist would be. And again, depending on on some people, they might get involved in um, a recovery program. Uh, some people may get involved in. There's a 12 step program like an SA. There's a Sexaholics Anonymous. Uh, sex and love acts anonymous there's meetings worldwide uh you can get online you can find a meeting there's there's some of them are a lot of them are virtual some of them are are in person um so there's definitely help in that way you know group support is a big part of that you know like you said it's it's a very uh this can be a very isolating because it's very uh, shame-based behavior and so people feel very like they're they're very much alone but there's a lot of people who are Uh Um, struggling with the same type of thing in their life and so this is very very it's a lot more common than what we know than what people think.
1: Well thank you for mentioning those sites pretty useful. From a brain developmental perspective is there any age that makes you immune to being addicted to porn?
0: I would say probably in the first you know the first four or five years of your life you probably are kind of immune to it because you're just you're just developing but um, you know, as far as being you know, again, I there's people who, you know, the range is kind of you know, it's from anywhere from you know early childhood age all the way up to the end of life. So it could be from you know, I would say probably just if I threw some numbers out there, it'd be six to, you know, ninety, you know, any any range in that, any time really? in your life you could potentially. It's not deal like teenagers this.
1: are more prone to addiction than a young, adult or twenty four years old. There's no correlation there.
0: Well, I would say that uh, teenagers certainly probably have, or young adults certainly probably have much more of Exposition, a, um, yeah. again, the younger we are, the more plastic our brain is, so to speak. Our brain is more malleable. So that oh. so it means like, you know, we can certainly change it differently than when we're older. But what I typically see in my experience is that there's, there's people who have been, they got hooked on this behavior when they were an adolescent and they never were able to change it. And so right. now they're 40, 50 years old and they're still dealing with it. So, you know, is it common for people to be 40 years old and then start, start down this path and mm-hmm. not as common, but there's certainly no, there's no real age is necessarily immune to this behavior. But I would say from a perspective of like adolescents and teenagers, certainly that as- I think you're more just because of the aspect of social media today. and I think also just because of the culture we're in, uh, you probably have more uh, again, the, the, the conditions are probably more favorable to, for that to occur.
1: Right. It's
0: not guaranteed to happen that way, but there are probably more conditions are favorable in that way because it is something that is more accepted, uh, but it's hidden. You know, so like it's accepted that people watch porn, but they don't talk about it, which is a, it's a didn't concurrency. It doesn't connect. Right. So that's, that's where some of that comes up from.
1: Speaking of, in what ways does addiction to porn or sex affect one's life? Besides the context of relationships, of course, where you have infidelity, which of course is huge and there's no denying that, but what else do people really struggle with?
0: Well, earlier we kind of mentioned about the, you know, how, how often they're thinking about it. And so will that elevate to people for some, for some folks to elevate, to start to cause disruption with their work, with their, you know, again, the best, one of the best examples I can give you would be like the person who struggles with watching porn when they come home from work. A lot of yeah, people talk about this idea of kind of like lost time where they get on on the internet, they're going to look at 10 minutes of porn, no big deal. They're going to go to bed at three hours goes by. And so that's something where like, okay, now I can't get to sleep. I'm not getting them. I'm not able to function for work as well because now I'm tired and I'm getting up late. That would be one example of that. Uh, it doesn't mean that everybody has that but because sometimes even people will, will will even act out during you know break periods or on work or go in the bathroom at work. They'll take the phone there's a lot of different kind of things where it starts to become kind of an all encompassing type behavior where you're doing it, you know, periodically throughout the day. And, you know, you may not consider yourself having a problem because you're in denial about that. But, you know, again, to everybody else, it's like, well, you're going to the bathroom five times a day, you know, what are you doing in there kind of thing, you know, you're in there, you know, why do you important. So there, it does, it does start to affect for people in that way and it can grow. Um, It doesn't mean that for everybody it's going to be that way, but for a lot of folks, especially if it starts to elevate that way, it can be throughout your life. It can be something that you start to see uh, on a daily basis. And so uh, some people have more of a binge purge cycle. Well, they'll they'll kind of consume a lot at a period of time, then it'll stop, and they'll they'll stop the behavior for a while, but they're always kind of returning to it. And then there's some people, like you said, where it's just all across the board. It will just kind of continue to slowly elevate. And now I find myself. Oh, you! When I started, I watched an hour of it. Now I'm now I'm up to like, you know, twenty hours a week, kind of thing. And that's and that's common. That that will be. That'll happen from time to time.
1: And also affects your energy levels. I'm assuming.
0: Mm-hmm. Like you feel
1: yeah, low energy all the time. Yeah, because you're not sleeping. So again,
0: yeah. sleep. Yeah, sleep. Sleep's affected.
1: Yeah, yeah, but not just sleep, because when you're constantly engaging in dopamine release, and it creates what's called um, dopamine depletion, and that cycle kind of reduces your baseline levels from what I know.
0: Well, yeah, it definitely will raise your baseline. So yeah, you're going to, you're going to have, you know, you're not going to probably feel as many, like one way people will typically use pornography is to, is to numb out. So they try to numb certain emotions. Well, you can never numb like one emotion, you numb them all. And so what ends up happening is, is for a lot of people they'll use that. And so they won't feel anything. They'll just be like, well, I don't feel anything anymore. I don't, you know, I'm never, I'm not really angry. I'm not really sad. I'm never really happy. Because I, I've numbed out so much, so there's there's that as an aspect. But kind of back to so you said dopamine, that also plays you know because I've I've raised that level because I'm always having that that hit so to speak of dopamine. Now it's gone up. Now I'm trying to reduce it because I'm not acting out yeah. as much. And so yeah, it could definitely be part of that low mood, depression type symptomologies, anxieties. Um, one that's very common for folks that's very tied to um, pornography is ADHD or yeah. ADD. Um, so it kind of again the when por- pornography helps to sort of Uh, quiet the other voices, so to speak, in someone's head or like the focus, the focus helps you kind of hyper focus. So sometimes people will have that association there. It it helps them to to, do a bit, you know, to focus in a way that they wouldn't be able to if they weren't acting out. Um, And again, they may be undiagnosed, but that's, that's something that sometimes comes up too. So there are some other mental health uh, associations with it too.
1: And now on to the bright side, if there is one, is there like a healthy level of watching porn or masturbating
0: yeah i get that question a lot and i and i don't i don't i guess it really depends on kind of the individual person's understand like you know again probably some different parts of their individual belief system and also what they feel is healthy so if you're a single person and and, you know you're you know you're watching pornography and, and and masturbating i mean i could see that being something as you know maybe you wouldn't have an issue with that you know, if your your faith base tells you, you know, that you're okay with that. Whatever the case might be, that you're you're comfortable with that. I mean, I I see it being something that I could see why people are drawn to it. I guess no, the couple downsides I'd say faith. with I'm it is about that
1: biologically, if there's a healthy level.
0: Oh, but okay, but
1: yeah, okay, faith biologically, faith,
0: yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know if there's if I'd say there's necessarily a healthy in that sense. I mean, I think that you know, there's 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 a piece of us that you know, you know, we are sexual beings, so I can understand why people would would want to do that. I certainly can understand people would find a you know, could try to find a healthy balance to it. I think the the biggest concern biologically I'd say is that how is it affecting my brain in yes. the fact of you know what I'm choosing to do with my view, you know, my view you know if that's my consistent routine of how I'm, you know, finding ways to cope with stuff, does that does it continue to play out as, as I move forward in my life? that would be kind of my biggest, probably, you know, from a biological perspective would probably be the biggest concern because if my brain is altered to that degree, that doesn't, you know, once I build sort of those little pathways in my brain, those don't go away. They just become dormant once I stop using them. So if I have built a pathway that I've used pornography and then I just try to stop, you know, that porn that pathway still exists. It doesn't just, you know, dry up. It just becomes dormant, so to speak. So, I always think of like little roads through your brain. And so you have, you know, you can use different roads to get different places and your other road just becomes unmaintained. It's not something you're using, but it's still there. And so is that something that could still draw me down, you know, in the future.
1: And a question popped in my head earlier when you were talking about how people explore with multiple partners. Have you by any chance come across in your research, um, a, from the perspective of our biology or evolutionarily, if we are more prone towards monogamy or polyamory,
0: well, I, I don't have any personal research on any of that, but I know when we've we've done, I know some of the the research stuff that we use. Again, Dr. Carnes, he's our he's the guy that we use a lot of the research from. Um, he, you know, they talked a lot about you know the idea when you're when you're uh, when you have polyamory, um, it's one of the things that you know we're, we're sort of people struggle having that relate because it always feels like there's going to be somebody who's going to be not attended to, right? There's the, if you are with multiple partners, it's going to affect how you It's a very how lonely journey from you know, what can you I re-
1: understand. It's a very lonely journey.
0: Yeah. How can you really truly be, you know, intimate with one person if you've got I mean, multiple people you're part of, you know, yeah. my, my, my hypothesis would be that you probably become kind of compartmentalized, meaning that you know, you're one person with one, with one in, one partner and you're probably another person with the other rather than being truly who you are. Um, so I, I would just say that, you know, that cause I know when, in a lot of cases with, uh, with, with sex addiction, particularly, uh, compartmentalization is a big part of people's uh, journey. So they tend to, you know, I'm one person over with this group of people and I'm one person with this group of people. And, and so what ends up happening is they don't, they're, they're almost disconnected from themselves cause they don't really know who they are. They're, they're multiple people, uh, with multiple groups. So you, so I would imagine with polyamory is kind of probably, That's just my my hypothesis would be that they probably have a similar type of
1: uh, experience interesting well thank you patrick for creating such awareness around what i would call a pretty relevant topic and just before we wrap up how would you describe an epic being
0: an epic being is would be somebody who is living in their best understanding of themselves and they are—they know they're having a direction of where they're headed, and they are, you know, living in sort of that passion of that direction that they're—that they're living in, whatever conviction that is, and that they're—they're they're helping to um, support our people that are around them in the best way that you know, with how they truly are understanding themselves to be.
1: Very cool. And where would you like people to reach out to you? Should they have any questions about any of this, or just want to dive deeper?
0: Yeah, so we have, uh, so our website that we're at, uh, the practice is northpoint-counseling.com, and we are in the Detroit, Michigan area, Um, and so we are Michigan's number one, or we're one of Michigan's top resources for sexual addiction and partner trauma. Uh, The other area you can reach me at is my my Instagram is rated underscore PGE, and I also have a Threads account with that as well, so that's the same uh, same name there as well, and um, uh, those are probably the two biggest Ways to get a hold of me. I do have a LinkedIn if you'd like to reach out, or and, and also I know there you know we talked about the email. If there's and my email is patrickeilers. We at gmail.
1: Okay, I shall put that in the show description. Um, thank you, Patrick, and great conversation. Appreciate this. Yeah,
0: thank you so much for having me.
1: And that's the wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. If this conversation resonated, help spread the value by sharing with a friend and feel free to share your thoughts and comments on Instagram at epic.beings. Also, to stay up to date with weekly episodes, you may want to hit subscribe. Until next time, stay epic.